Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today I have with me sculptor and artist and uh, man of the world. He told me I can call him master of the universe or something like that. David Mosier, good to have you with me today. Well, thank you, Lisa. Had I known you were going to use that against me, I may not have shared it. Oh, I mean, I don't even know if I got it right. Was it master of the universe or lord of all creation or something yeah, it's, like it's that? It's a little bit of all that. Yeah, I generally keep that my home life. I expect my children to call me that. It doesn't work very well. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's good to have high expectations of yourself. I think it is. If you don't have high expectations for yourself, who else would have them for you? So yeah. I think you have to advocate for yourself first. Yeah, that's right. And I should say for people that are watching, it's not, you were saying this in, in the most um, kidding of tones. It wasn't like you were actually suggesting that we should all call you that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. To set that stage. Okay. There's only one way to go from here. But um, tell me how you got into sculpting. Oh, gee. You know, um, I didn't get into it at a, at a moment in time. Uh, working with my hands has been something I have been doing since a child. So it, it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't a wholesale shift from one career to another or from one ex, uh, one material to another. It was, it's been something I've, I've always done. Uh, and, you know, and I'm sorry it occurred to me that I could have brought uh, a small mug that my mother has, which I gave to her when I was eight years old. I made a little, when it comes to working in the clay, I made a little clay mug of a, and I put a caricature face. It was a, a little head that I fashioned into a mug. And uh, I'm sure it was part of an art class in preschool or, or primary school. I know I was eight, so whatever grade that is. Um, and then to show the contrast of how this mug, which, uh, and of course it's all untutored. So this mug, how it morphs into what I'm doing today uh, as an object ex example of how... Um, uh, honing one's skill uh, is a, a, just takes a lot of time because um, I am not a I'm not a trained sculptor. I, I, I've never my actually my background is in economics. Uh, so as a as a sculptor, I come at it totally self taught and, and organic. So you are trained. You just trained yourself. <laughs> Yeah, I I am trained. Uh, when I was a furniture designer, my father used to uh, think that all of my free-spirited creation was some form of catharsis. And what I had to correct him was actually, you know, it's not as much, it, it, perhaps it is cathartic because you have to work out problems that, that as from an artistic perspective, you have to work out these problems that, that uh, are... Um, uh, recurring in your head. In fact, I learned a new word the other day. It's called perseverance. Uh, perseverance is, is when you continue to just work and work and work an issue. Um, generally, it happens about two in the morning with me, but any event, it's not so much a cathartic uh, exercise as I was honing my skills, as much as it was onboarding new information. So as a self-taught artist, craftsman, uh, 
I was, I was doing my practical, that you would consider practical if it was in the classroom, but these are real-world practical examples. So um, that's actually how I, how I evolved into, into where I am now um, vis-a-vis sculpting. How did you end up going from economics to furniture designing to sculpting? Or maybe... I don't even know yeah. if I have the actual. Well, no, the, yeah, the, the, the chronology is pretty well right. Uh, we started, uh, we being uh, the Moser furniture uh, in the early 70s. And so um, we were, you know, very crafty. And by around uh, 1983, which is when I went off to college, it was in the middle of the Reaganomics. So I was very much a part of the whole uh, Reagan period. Of uh, uh, in fact, I was I I even joined the Adam Smith Club, uh, Young Main Main Venture Capitalist Club, and I had the I had the power suit and the yellow tie, uh, and that was that was enjoyable for a while. Uh, but you can only deny your passions for so long, um, and. Uh, Although that was a, uh, that's how I, my college career went, but I was a fish out of water. Um, it was something that I attempted to do. I think I could get rich quick. And then I realized that uh, there was more to life than just making money. Where did you go to college? Went to college at uh, Northwood uh, out in Michigan. And uh, uh I was introduced by Margaret Chase Smith to Northwood, who uh, was a trustee there. And so I, I took my, my associates there, and I finished up here in Maine uh, at Orono. Yeah. I'm, I'm certain that people of our era will recognize Margaret Chase Smith as a name, but for those of us who might be a little uh, less far along the path, let's say, Margaret Chase Smith, tell us about your relationship ah. with her. Well, Margaret Chase Smith was one of the was uh, the first woman senator that the country uh, had, and she hailed from Skowhegan, Maine. And uh, every senator, congressman, and president uh, is given a budget uh, to build their library. And so, when Margaret Chase Smith built her library in Skowhegan, she approached Thomas Moser, and uh, we designed and built the furniture there. And then uh, that, by extension, led me to, to Northwood. So I would have been about, what, 18 at the time. So it seems like if someone like Margaret Chase Smith says, here's a wonderful place that you should go to school, it probably would be a little hard to say no. Uh, well, it certainly came with a lot of uh, merit, uh, and uh, it was a raving endorsement. Um, and it was a, a conservative financial school, so that made sense to me at the time. Yeah. It is an interesting, um, it seems to be an interesting contrast, the sort of the Reaganomics side of David Mosier and the craftsperson, sculptor side. The, I, I, I mean, I, I'm sure that there are, are conservative artists, but I don't, I haven't met a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know why either, because it, it, it seems paradoxical to me that... Uh, um, an artist who generally are free-spirited, free-willed, and, in, and individualistic 
with respect to how they, their optics of the world and how they view the world and how many artists seem to be uh, collectivists. So there's the paradox. Is how can you be an individual and yet be chastised if you don't follow the group and so therefore they're also followers? They are, they are both the same. And I find that very interesting because I don't believe I'm a collectivist. I do believe that I follow my individual passion, my individual belief. Um, yeah. Is that something that your family encouraged you to do? Um, I would say, well, we had a very competitive family. And so maybe that's why I have a, a bit of a recalcitrant streak in me um, is to uh, I have to defend my position, constantly defending my position, um, which is something artists have to do regularly as to defend. Because, you know, there's art in all of us, right? We're, we're all artists. Um, the real... Uh, Successful artists, the ones that are doing it for a social purpose, not, I mean, there is, you know, there is catharsis in art, right? Clearly. Um, but if your intention as an artist is to inform the social landscape, uh, then you have to be a good persuader. It isn't just the quality of your art, but it's, it, it's showing the idiosyncrasies and the merit behind why this art should have a voice in the social narrative. And so you can be a great technician, and I kind of feel I'm, a tech, I'm more of a technician than an artist. You can be a great technician, you can fashion material together really well, but if you can't, if you can't weave a good story and if you can't be a good persuader, uh, then the art really only just stands for you and, and, and doesn't have any merit or, 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 or will need to be um, I, I, you know, called out or identified by you know, the greater population. And, and, I, and I, I think of like Andy Warhol, right? A soup can. A soup can? Really? That's art? No, that's not the art. The art was in his ability to persuade a bunch of people who are collectivist thinking that that should have, should have some social merit. There's so many things that you just threw out there that I feel like we could latch on to. Um, the first, I think, is this idea of being a, a technician. So I think what I hear you saying is you can create something that is technically well um, done and it may not actually um, have that additional something that draws people toward it as something worthy of note. Yeah. So, right. Right. So I would say that uh, on, the, on the continuum of artistic development, uh, I don't, first of all, um, you should never stay static, right? Because as soon as, as soon as you start to stay static, you entropy, right? You start to decay. So my particular art, 
with respect to figure sculpture has kind of reached its, uh, its apex um, with the work that I currently have. Um, and I don't think that I need to prove to myself that I can execute really well uh, you know, figures. Figures that are anatomically accurate, uh, but that the only way that I can convey spirit, attitude, or intent is by posturing the figures. All right, so my father likes to call this one the supplicant, right? Um, and I had mentioned this earlier, I think, to Kevin um, in a, another discussion uh, about how if you take a look at all of my work in their collective uh, form, the narrative emerges, right? That artistic narrative, the thing that I'm trying to say, uh, it, but it can only really be seen in the totality of all of my pieces together, right? Now, now because of their form, their posturing, supplicant, even by the name, uh, begins to, uh, you know, bring into focus um, the emotion, the feeling, that catharsis I had mentioned earlier, that, that's how I am. My catharsis is manifested in, in the collective figure posturing of, of my pieces. But I say that I'm at the apex of it because I don't need to make another good figure. I've done that. I now would like to, to on, that, on that journey of artistic expression now that i now that i because i'm self you know self-taught right all right well okay i've gotten to this point now how do i how do i use the forms uh as a manifestation of my my mental cathartic narrative um and if I was a writer, I'd be able to put it pen to paper and I could tell you exactly, you know, how I, I you know, and I'm not, not self-deprecating, but, you know, I, I have angst and I have, um, you know, feelings of inadequacy and I, all those things. And even now, I kind of wonder why people are even interested in looking at the things I do, because I'm, I mean, it's not like I, I went to Rhode Island Institute of Design and studied for eight years and I got an MFA or whatever those are and, uh, and you know, toiled for years and years and years and studied anatomy. And no, I, I, I was, I just am able to do it. Um, so, having said that, so there we are at the at at, at this zenith, right? So, what I want to do now, uh, not that you're a vast, but uh, what I'd like to do is to um, approach future figurative pieces with a with a, a a more overt sense of expression right and and perhaps more abstract um as an author uh the general practice is to write rewrite write again until you take an entire paragraph and you condense it down to a couple of sentences right well as a sculptor i want to do the same thing so whatever it is you know whatever the feeling that i want to evoke I want to do it in, in 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 more subtle form, and in purer form. And the I wish I could paint. I can't. 
But in the medium that I've can chosen in vis-a-vis -vis clay, uh, I think I can achieve that. Um, I'll still use a kind of anthropomorphic form, but I'm not going to make it so anatomical accurate because anyone, a lot of people can do figures. Few, few people uh, can persuade and evoke emotion, right? So as we're looking at the supplicant, what type of catharsis were you um, working on with this figure? I feel like I should have a couch instead of a chair right now. Because <laughs> I mean, you brought it up. I, I wouldn't I, have actually gone there unless you know you well, put it out there. Uh, I, I mean, I, as I as I said earlier, I mean, it's a, it's a sense of angst, right? Uh, maybe a sense of despair, um, sense of loneliness. Um, there are a lot of lot of lot of darker things. Uh, hope, the one I'm working on now. Uh, you know, they're, they're all kind of, you know, she's, she's floating off, but she's got a hand to earth, you know, my, your kind of mortal savior. I don't know. But isn't that really okay and actually pretty wonderful, the idea that you are embracing your own vulnerability and you're um, exposing your own significant kind of interactions with the world in your mm -hmm. art? Yeah, yeah. I think that um, it takes a lot of courage to do that. Um, not that I'm any kind of courage, courageous hero or anything, but a lot of, it, and that doesn't just apply to art. You know, that idea about uh, exposing one's inner thoughts and beliefs and uh, is true across the spectrum, whether or not it's art or design or business. Anytime an innovator comes up with a, a, a new idea, they're opening themselves up to tremendous criticism. Um, and uh, I, I'm actually kind of used to it because as a, as a furniture designer, I, I mean, I know a little bit about having to defend one's, one's creation. Not so much in the, on the business side. Um, I was really fortunate as a, as a designer that uh, pieces that I did resonated uh with other people and they actually wanted to live with and be surrounded by my pieces but not only that but you know as a, as a designer actually there's a there's a correlation so between um art and your ability to persuade and design and your uh, ability to persuade um so an artist uh owes really nothing to anybody other than to him or herself, right? I'm doing this for my re my reason, right? I'm saving time on the couch, basically, by doing this. If you like it, I'm really pleased. But I'm only pleased. I don't, or don't like it. I'm, and that's okay, because you don't have to share my inner, inner catharsis, right? But as a designer, a designer is entirely different. And I actually have... Um, a fair amount of resentment to artists, uh, to uh, architects, designers, and chair designers who design for their own hubris and without res regard to the way in which it impacts the built landscape. 
So a designer, and this goes back to earlier around, you know, defending oneself. Okay, now that you've created an, uh, an object, you now have to persuade an entire infrastructure and shift a paradigm. So you have a and and shifting paradigm is not as easy as you, as one would think because you know when you onboard a bit of information it's a very indelible moment right that's exactly how the world is forever yeah until an innovator comes up with another idea says I want to shift the paradigm a little bit and people are very res resistant to it so designers unlike artists um, owe it to the organization and the community to be persuaded, to understand the validity um, and the practicality uh, and the efficacy of um, either a new way of doing as an innovator or a new way of constructing as a, as a manufacturer. So it's not like I'm not used to pushing the boundaries and, and convincing people of changing your position. Um, Tell me about this idea of um, coming from a competitive family. Well, hmm. Uh, In what way was your family competitive? How did the, how did that end up kind of being a part of your? Well, I I can sum it up by saying that we had a very authoritarian father and four boys. That's the end of that. <laughs> I mean, when you have that much testosterone in in one room. Uh, and then, of course, I'm the youngest, so uh, there is a, uh, in geology, it's called sublimation, right? I mean, the larger entity uh, is, is, you know, rises to the top, and then everything else gets sublimated below it. Well, as the youngest, you get, in the youngest, in, a, in the hierarchy of family structure, generally gets sublimated um, to the, the more dominant members, uh, siblings, right? So I had to uh, assume very traditional and expected roles, actually. You know, youngest is always, uh, you know, has to be a little bit more flamboyant to gain attention, becomes the comedian to gain attention. I mean, these are all roles that most clinical psychologists understand that are inherited uh, in, in family structure. The lone standout, of course, being a single child that, Well, I, I, I'm interested in this because in my family, and I'm the oldest of 10, um, it's been suggested huh. that our family has a certain amount of competitiveness, but I think it, it comes out in a different way. In our family, it's it just seems like everybody has wanted to do, it's just expected that we do well and that we are all striving for excellence in our, mm -hmm. in our respective fields. And so when I, and I think because being in a family of 10, it's not that different than being in a Family, family of four, of four yeah. with boys, right? That that there is this kind of trying to, um, it's, it's a little bit of jostling for position, but it's really trying to understand your own identity um, within the construct of the group. Mm -hmm. And I find that really interesting because I think all of us believe that we are truly individuals or want to be truly individuals, but most of us are really who we are as a result of the context that we um, evolve in. Well, that is absolutely true. And it doesn't surprise me that you're the oldest, by the way. Oh, I, but you should meet my next sisters down. You would think they were the oldest. Oh, really? And they're twins, yes. So all of it is... Well, maybe they had that going. They had a, they had a twofer. 
so they, they had a two for deal against you. So yeah, they kind of did, but yeah. they're excellent. And I and I and and I think that it is interesting because for you, it actually kind of pushed you to really claim your identity early on and really work toward. You kind of went the the straight path, but then you kind of said, "No, I want to be who I am. I'm going to keep doing this design work. I'm going to keep doing this artistic work." And it might not feel that great at the time, but as a result of the struggle, you get to the other side and it seems like it's been very valuable for you. Um, well, I think, I, I think nature finds a way of, of, you know, parity and, you know, balancing itself out. Um, no, there are often times that I wish I, I wasn't a creative. Um, I, I don't know what it's like to work in a cubicle at an insurance company. But I've got to imagine that if you can, I don't even want to, because it sounds so disparaging if I say, if you can tolerate it, how liberating it must be to say that, no, I, I'm quite content. I come to work at nine, I leave at five, I process these papers. And again, you know, if you have the constitution for it, how liberating that must be. Because, uh, but to, to have constant yearning to, to do things, I can't sit still. I, I've got to be making things. Um, uh, it's vexing. It's exhausting. Yes. And I think... You're right that it would kill you in a different way if you weren't in the place that you, if you were in the cubicle doing the insurance claims, which yeah. for some people is, is really a great way to live their lives. But for you and your particular personality and disposition. Yeah. Well, I, I am, I admire those people for their ability to do that, uh, if I was put in that position, I, I honestly don't know how I would get through my life. So I admire them for that. And I am so incredibly grateful for the life that I've had that I stumbled into a, a family that builds things, builds furniture, builds buildings that I've you know, I was able. I have a lovely wife who's supportive, who in her, her herself is a creator and a builder. Not not in the art world, but she is a. She understands the courage it takes to to build new things, uh, and take those risks. And so, I am incredibly grateful that I have a a universe or my immediate universe around me uh, is set up to allow for for creativity and innovation um, and, uh, you know, the creative build process. I just came off a job. Uh, we, we bought an investment property down in the Caribbean. Uh, my wife championed the, the, the property and she now manages it. But if not for that, I never would have been able to build a house in the Caribbean. Um, you know, someone once said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And I'm in. <laughs> I am all in. 
Uh, and well, you know a little bit about uh, challenging horizons and, and varying occupational pursuits. Absolutely. And and I, I like you, I would never want to live a life different than the one that I have. And the ability to spend time examining one's life is is actually a privilege of some sort, mm-hmm. I think, because there are a lot of people who find themselves in places where they, they're so worried about just basic survival yeah. that it's hard to take the time to step back. So I think you're right to find yourself not only um, the son of somebody who is an entrepreneur who created a new and different life, um, older brothers who kind of created a sense of competitiveness for you, and then now to be with Pam and, and her contribution to your ability to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. I mean... It can both be incredibly challenging and also really perfect for the, the person that you are. Yeah. And so you ask yourself, you um, 57 years old, how much was by design and how much was by chance? Mm, those are good questions. Well, when, when it comes... And, and, and I think, you know, another thing I'm very grateful for is having, you know, lived in a place and time uh, that allowed for perhaps more design in one's lifestyle and and less chance we and i'm not sure that how much that's going to go into the future but living in rural maine at the time that i did gee i mean it was i would say maybe 80 percent design and 20 percent chance do you think that people are longing for that now that we've gone oh my through God. this digital age and people want these touch points, the solidity, the, they want, the space. Yeah, they wanted it before. They wanted it before the COVID. Um, people have all, you know, uh, there's a, um, we all want to be recognized as having lived um, in, in, in some way. And some of us get to leave a more lasting impact of our existence. And some of us can only paint graffiti on a wall. But all of us have that. It's a, it's a, you know, that it's a human need. Uh, it, it's, it's a manifestation of consciousness that I was here. And, it, and maybe I only do it on a, as a cave painting. But you know what? I was here. Um, we all have it. Now, uh, fortunately, in the art world, um, some of us can't create uh, as a lasting visual remembrance. Some of us uh, don't want to, you know, graffiti a sidewalk. Um, But for those of us who are in the middle, they they can procure those things. And so they can pick and choose of a cornucopia of fashion style design, which one best represents their belief system. So that if they were able to build a piece of furniture, if they were able to sculpt a piece of sculpture, these are the things that I identify with. So we all have it and, and some of us have to acquire it. Um, yeah. We started this conversation joking about the master of the universe idea, and I've actually kind of become convinced that really what you're saying is you really have designed your life. 
So you, you've kind of created this sort of mastering of your own universe, which actually is quite, it's not like you're trying to master other people. It's that you want permission. You've given yourself permission to have a life that you designed on purpose. Do you think you're doing that for your children? Uh, no, I'm doing it because I don't know anything else to do. Well, I meant, are you also doing it for your children? Are, no. Do you feel like No, you're... if I were doing it for my children, uh, I would be much more disciplined. Uh, I would be a better role model uh, for my... I only have one daughter. I'd be a better role model for her um, as my father was for me and my brothers. Um, we learned uh, well, work ethic... We learned sacrifice of one's own desire. I mean, the way, cause, yeah, because the way, when I hear you put it that way, I feel like that um, I, I've perhaps too selfish, too self-centered, um, that uh, that um, I'm not maybe, you know, working towards a greater good. So when I was a kid, we, we worked as a collective. Um, and, uh, we worked, uh, as a family, as a collective unit. And there's a lot to be said for that. And, and I wish in many ways, um, and listen, I'm not alone in this because again, if you worked in an insurance agent, you're not bringing your kid to work. Uh, but I, I, I wish that perhaps, um, I yearn for those days of, of working in the old Grange Hall, which was an old shop that we renovated, uh, and we all had our roles, either sweeping the floor or stacking wood, and then later building furniture and, excuse me, building showrooms and whatnot. Um, that uh, I felt like I was, you know, a kind of a part of something. So I'm not trying to be a role model for my daughter. Because if I were, well, I'm a role model in 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 a way of you know find your own path. But I'm not a role model when it comes to um, teaching her the responsibility of working in a in a group and owing other owing owing something to other members in that group, right? Um, working in a collective way. Artists artists unfortunately are a very lonely bunch. Uh, you know we don't. Again, I, designers are not lonely at all, but. Artists are, are very lonely. So, yeah, not sure where I'm going with that whole thing with Sabine, but it'd um, be, nice be nice to give her a common goal. Well, how old is she now? She's 15. Yeah. I suspect you, I suspect it's similar to my own children who are now almost 21 plus, and... Uh, they're going to come up with their own goals, right? So what what you're doing is you're kind of you're providing the environment, the ecosystem, the media, mm -hmm. and that's that's all we really could do as parents, right? Yeah, role models, and you do the best you can to guide them along. You want to talk about how that's made? I would love to hear that. Yes. So I brought some show and tell. Okay. Um. Let me first of all tell you the origin of how I uh, how I came up with this form. So my Pam is a is a. Uh, you ever hear of the artist Seal? Kissed by a rose. Oh yes, yeah. A rose. yeah, yeah. All right. So she's Seal's number one fan. Yeah. 
and this is an homage to her dedication to, to the artist. So uh, there was an album cover, I don't know, I think it was like 19, uh, 2000 or 94. It, it was, a, it was a, a, a collective. Anyway, it, it appeared on an album cover like 1994, something like that. Uh, and of course, it was two-dimensional. So, but as an, uh, this, so I, I picked up a lot of cues uh, from that, and that's how I got the idea for this pose. And then what you do is you start with this, it's, it's actually clay. Well, I mean, um, it's actually um, plastiline, it's not clay. So plastiline uh, is an oil base, and it, and it never truly hardens. But it is, it is highly malleable, and this is, you buy them in these chunk forms. Uh, and through a process of, of handwork and tools, uh, you fashion and, and you can fashion it. Now, I generally don't work with a lot of tools when I'm working with clay. Uh, and the tools that I do work with are very rudimentary. I mean, they're like, uh, I sh sorry, I should have brought some of them. But, you know, they're sticks and they're bent steel. And they may be steel with a with a wire wrapped around it, which is how I get the texturing. Um, and I'll tell you something that's interesting about working with clay is that uh, there's such an immediate connection between what's going on in your mind and what 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 appears in in your ultimate work. And I think the same is true with paint, right? I mean. You either have, you have a, a palette of paint and you slap it on the canvas and there's a direct connection. Um, and save the, the medium of the brush, you know, that's, a, that's an active stream of consciousness. Well, clay actually works in, in much the same way. I mean, it, it responds in real time. Um, I've, I've never actually, you know, as a designer, I've never actually worked on the computer. I mean, I know how they operate. They're necessary. They're another tool. But I don't want to spend my time learning the computer, mostly because uh, it's an interference. So if I had to think about what button to click, what F1 return control delete to, to I would have forgotten what I was thinking about. Uh, so I, I, I love the immediacy and the, and the free flow of thought uh, and, and my, and, you know, to, a, to the expression. So you start with clay, which is around an armature. There are five steps in, in bronzing, uh, and it takes a lot of patience. Uh, and if you ever want to make uh, a small fortune as a sculptor in bronze, start out with a large one, because it is really cost, uh, uh, costly. You start out with a, a positive. The positive is in the clay. So... Now you've made this sculpture, then you make a mold, and the mold is a rubber, uh, and then uh, a plaster, and you what's called a clamshell comes apart in, in two parts. The mold is made, and now you've got a, a hollow cavity. Um, and in that hollow cavity, you then pour what's called the lost wax, right? So we're all familiar with lost wax, and the reason that it's called lost wax is because it's literally gonna become eviscerated uh, when put in the kiln. So now you've got the, you've got the mold, you pour in the rubber mold, you pour in the wax, and you get something that looks like that. Uh, so that is lost wax. Uh, and um, 
then the wax then gets dipped in uh, a silica and it gets a consecutive bath of silica um, until you get a shell that's about a half an inch thick. Um, the silica shell then gets put into a kiln. The kiln's brought up to about 2,400 degrees in temperature. The wax melts away, it's lost, and then that leaves a void. Now you've got a silica shell hardened, empty, because this is no longer in it. Then, uh, and so much of this hasn't changed since the Bronze Age, you take a, a, a crucible full of molten bronze, and you bring it into uh, where you've put the shells. Now the shells are in a, in a, in a, bo a, a box of sand, and uh, you pour in, out of the crucible, you pour in the molten bronze that then falls down through all these caverns. And, and this would have, this is not an actual example, because if it were, it would have what's called gates and spurs, and that allows for air to evacuate and uh, would take care of, of air pockets where the bronze can't get in because of what's called uh, 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 angle of incidence. Um, now you've got the bronze, and it's got all these spurs on it, and it's very crude. You've got to cut those off um, and sandblast the thing, weld all the joints back together again. This probably had eight or nine different molds. They all have to be welded together, sandblasted again, and then... Uh, more artistry because wherever there was a weld, then you've got to go in with, with metal tools and re-sculpt where the joint was. That would have been, of course, um, a, a uniform with clay, but now is interrupted with a weld. So you re-sculpt that, and it's really hard because now you're dealing with bronze, not clay. Uh, and you've got to do it in such a way that, that there is no weld joint visible. And then finally, you can apply the patina, which is a potash. Um, and, uh, well, this happens to be livery sulfide, uh, but there are other patinas that you can put on there to uh, uh, give it color. And not only give it color, but there's more artistry involved in the patina process because it isn't like you're just painting it on and you have a, 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 a uniform surface. But in the application of the patina, now you want to be conscientious about tension and, and, and slack spots and whatnot. So, you know, you've got to apply that and being mindful that there would be tension on the kneecap and then there's tension on the skull. And this is called your occipital bone, and that's got to be polished off. Anyway, and then that's finally how, you, how it's done. Um, uh, and it's a process that hasn't changed much in a thousand years. How long does it take? Months, months, months. Long time. Long time. I wish I were a painter. I really do. Painting would be so much easier. And I'm not to take away from the technical side of it, but once you get the canvas and you get the paint, you've only got a few, you know, processes you have to contend with, and they're. A lot of processes involved in, in bronzing. And now you've got something that weighs 85 pounds and you can't even move it around. 
But my understanding is that this piece has actually already been sold and sold to somebody who has another one of your pieces. Is that true? I've kind of lost track. We haven't sold a lot. Uh, I, I've only, we've put 20 uh, that we're going to sell. Uh, and I think we've sold one. This would be the fourth one of, of 20. So my point is that people who have an affinity for your work um, tend to continue to have an affinity for your work. So all of the work that you put into it, all the time that you put into it, does on the other side end up um, producing benefit, it seems, for people who really enjoy the pieces that you create. Well, I would say I would go back to that idea about collecting things that reflect who you are. So anyone who has an affinity for my work, I would say that we would probably be kindred spirits because that means that he and I, she and I, we look at the world the same way. Well, I appreciate your uh, willingness to dive a little deeper into your um, background, but also to share information about the way that you do your work. It's been a broad-ranging conversation. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with sculptor David Mosier, who obviously has many different talents. I encourage you to look at his work uh, on the Portland Art Gallery website, or really even better, go to the Portland Art Gallery because... There's nothing like actually being in the presence. This is a, to be here with this piece is, um, I think it does something different than just seeing it on, uh, on the internet. So I appreciate the time to speak with you, David, today, and um, I wish you all the best. Thank you.